Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the TSC Audio Project. In this episode of Shop Talk, Mike and I debunk some common foot-related myths that we encounter regularly with patients and over social media. Myths like bunions are genetic, flat feet are genetic, pronated feet require motion control, that you need cushioning in your shoes because the ground is hard, needing an arch support in shoes, and even um, talking about taking a different perspective on why people's feet get cold. This episode of the Audio Project is sponsored by TFC Freestyle Fresco Ball, our newest flow project at TFC. We sell fresco paddles online and post tricks that you can try to master starting with easy ones and progressing to much harder ones. It's a fun way to improve your coordination and we will eventually put out uh, regular prize money challenges to reward people for mastering the tricks and sending us videos. If you go to tfc-shop.com and click on fresco ball, you'll get more details on that. This episode is also sponsored by our travel partner, Nanook Protective Hard Cases, which we use to transport gear for our seminars and workshops, and you can check out their cases at nanook.com, N-A-N-U-K.com. That's it for sponsors, so let's dig into this episode. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC Audio Project. It's a collective effort. Help people understand their bodies, starting at the feet are the gateway for people to see that there's an issue. You know, a foot conversation is always a whole body conversation. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Shop Talk. On this myth-busting episode, we're going to get into some common foot and footwear myths and um, clarify some misconceptions that we're faced with regularly, both in clinic and on social media. So I think a good place to start with uh, for the first one is the myth that bunions are genetic or hereditary. And this one drives me nuts because everyone seems to think this, including professionals. Like all these posts that, are, that we do um, that talk about how bunions are not genetic, you... There's this one podiatry group in California that, that literally immediately says they are very much hereditary and genetic. It's so It drives me fucking nuts because it's so silly that professionals are preaching this stuff when it's, it's 100% false. Um, so let's talk about, let's start with what a bunion is. Okay, so bunion, a bunion, or um, they also call it hallux abducto valgus, it forms when your big toe drifts towards your other toes and forms this kind of bony bump on the inside of your foot at the base of your big toe. And a lot of people actually think that this is bone deposition um, and that it just needs to be shaved off. So I love when people say that, like, oh, I'm mm -hmm. just going to get it shaved off again. It's like, again, you're getting it shaved off for a second time? Like, people don't realize that it's not, sure, there might be a small element of, like, bone deposition from friction, but primarily, that's your first metatarsal. That's your, mm -hmm. the bone of your foot angling outward because your big toe is being pulled, pulled towards the other ones. So you can't just shave off part of the bone of your foot. It's so, no, it's exactly. so silly. Um, and I think if you follow TFC on socials and have heard past podcasts, you know that our position on bunions is that they're primarily the effect of narrow pointed shoes. But we, we wanted to get into this because this is something where there are, there's a ton of factors that contribute to this, right? Yeah. There, it's not just like this. I, I think it's important to mention to people that pointed narrow footwear is the primary driver to kind of get the ball rolling that's the elephant in the room it's like exactly. if you're if your shoes look like your foot with bunions right <laughs> they're probably playing a role that it's like oh okay cool like if if like a two-year-old or three-year-old saw an image of your foot and then like the shoe you put your foot in he'd be like Oh yeah, that makes sense. Oh, your shoe looks. Your foot looks like your yeah, shoe. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Like, yeah. why does that look like my foot? Like, you're not babies when they're born. The widest part of their foot is the tips of their toes. Okay, so you're not born with a bunion. There's no genetic element or, or gene in your body that makes you born with a crooked big toe. It doesn't fucking happen. No, so we need to get out of this. You know, and it's. I don't. When someone says, "Oh, they're genetic," I don't immediately jump to say, "Oh, no, they're not." I just. I'm. It makes me really curious. It's like, okay, where did you find out about this? Where did you hear that they were genetic? Was it a health professional? Was it something that? Um, 
because I, they're familial, right? Like they're they run in families, which I think people confuse familial with hereditary, right? Yeah. Like if if you have grindy knees and your mom has grindy knees and your grandparents have grindy knees, you know that osteoarthritic knee is familial, right? Your family, generations of your family have them, but they're not genetic. There's no, no gene that says your cartilage is supposed to break down. It's probably because your entire family spent too much time sitting, their hips don't work, and so their knees are breaking down. So, Or there's we, no gene that, that makes your toe grow in, in, yeah. a, in a sideways direction. Like, exactly. your toe doesn't grow in a sideways direction. Your foot isn't naturally supposed to be shaped in a sideways direction like that. Yeah, with so, no external environmental yeah. input, it doesn't happen. So. Exactly. Now, with that said, let's get into some of the other variables. So, Mike and I were talking before we, we started this thing about kind of a good analogy, I think, for bunions, where the first thing that kickstarts that big toe going in the making a right turn um, is pointed footwear. And that's kind of like having two little snowballs at the top of a hill and pushing each one down the hill. Yeah. That first push is footwear. With that said, one snowball, often. often. Yeah. With that said, well, I haven't, I haven't been given a good argument. I mean... If you have, let's say, like you're present with, well, if you present with the other factors that we're going to mention, yeah. regardless of footwear, that can play a part. But I would say, but I often. want to see someone that's in the Amazon that never wore shoes that has a bunion. I don't no, think exactly. it exists. So it's um, a, you're right. It's a so pot, that, like it's hard to say with certainty. But yeah, you're right. Like in most cases, that's until a unproven big otherwise, factor. I, I, I would say that it's the first kind of stimulus for that starting. If you never wore shoes, I don't think you'd ever have bunions unless you had this yeah. weird hip thing that you forced your hip outward or something like that. It could happen, but yeah. um, but with those two snowballs, a lot of people have a bigger bunion on one side than the other. A lot of people yeah. have a bunion on one side and none on the other. So so this person's probably wearing the same two shoes, yet they're developing a bunion on one side, not the other. So that's one argument. People say, well, it's genetic because I have one on my left and my dad has one on my left. It's like, there's other factors that play into this because those two snow one snowball might take a trajectory where there's way more snow, right? Way more bumps. It, so it may end up being a much bigger snowball, but it doesn't change the fact that the first thing that started those two snowballs was the fact that your shoes end in a point, the mm -hmm. human foot does not, and when the human foot starts to adopt the shape of a point at its tip, then you start to get this kind of bunion deformity or, or kick that process off. So, so let's talk about the other factors because I think big toe mobility is a huge one. Mm -hmm. So like mobility in general, if we talk about like probably the t two of the major keys areas are big toe and the ankle moving correctly mm -hmm. and then that affecting how your actual mo your movement is. So if we look at like what the foot is supposed to be doing when you're when you're walking, like generally you're, you're supposed to walk with your feet straight. Yes. Right. So that way you can take advantage of this windless mechanism, the propulsion effect of you generating a rigid lever as you push off. That's like literally how we propel ourselves. It's the reason why the first ray of the big toe is built that way. So we can actually propel ourselves forward in space because we are bipedal organisms. That's so, what lets you get to the end range of your ankle dorsiflexion to get yeah. the glute trigger to trigger, you know, exactly. end range dorsiflexion, end range hip extension, fire together to create a trigger for your glute to fire. Like if and you if don't you, get to that position, you miss out on a lot of things. And, and, and anybody who's in a biomechanics lab or learns this in school knows this. Like this is what, this is another weird thing is that you learn what normal is in, in school. Like even in like podiatry school, physical therapy school, you ha you learn about gait, you learn about what the, the normal push off is, the propel the propulsion phase. Mm -hmm. So then why do we think that, like what goes wrong there? So, but in order to, to demonstrate a normal gait, 
you need um, back to just like mobility. Like you need the right hardware moving. So well, that big toe. So that big toe. If, so what if your big toe doesn't move? What happens? You're still going to walk. If your big toe doesn't extend, you're not going to not walk and be immobilized in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. So you continue to walk in a way that compensates around that, right? Yeah. Whatever mobility restriction you have, it's kind of like a river that runs into an obstacle. You, the river just kind of goes around the obstacle. It still flows. Um, so if you can't extend straight through your big toe joint because it's stiff, uh, because it hasn't been, and that's another conversation. Like I think a lot of shoes don't let your big toe extend, right? Exactly. Take the tip of, of a shoe and try and bend it. It doesn't bend. So, so if, maybe that's another extraneous factor from not like, you know, regardless of whether the shoe shaped that too, that's another potential factor mm-hmm. that shoes may be causing mm-hmm. stiffness in big toe, stiffness in ankle. These other factors, shoes can also be tr- contributing to these other factors, sure. not necessarily just the fact that obviously they, they cram or, yeah. So, so if your big toe doesn't extend, what, like the conversations that I typically see in clinic, when your big toe doesn't extend, they oftentimes will roll off on the inside of the big toe. Yeah. And that's where you, you see that huge um, kind of callus on the inside border of the big toe because they're just working around it. They can't go through the big toe, they go around the big toe. And not only does that um, make the big toe stiffer because you're not actually exploring that end range, it literally pushes you on that same bunion angle. Yeah. Or, and then, so if you, the conversation is if you already have a bunion forming and, and maybe it's because your big toe is stiff, or maybe one of the reasons is because your big toe is stiff, mm-hmm. then you, and you start doing that, then you're going to, you're going to speed that up. That snowball is going to start yeah. increasing more and more because you're walking that way. And then you're having to skirt around that more and more. And then you, then that's your normal. Mm-hmm. So the way you walk is now. And again, like a lot of the big, the big thing with bunions is, is your, your flexor muscles that are supposed to push into the ground straight with that big toe turn into adductors. Basically, you're, once your toe's pointed to the side, it no longer works like a normal functional big toe. Exactly. It should. Exactly. So it starts to like... joint mechanics are off. It's like the hinge on a door being crooked. It doesn't mm-hmm. work as a hinge anymore. Exactly. So, so let's even talk about that. So when the big toe bends... Your big toe flexors, this big burly muscle has a pretty thick tendon. Like your big toe does a lot. If you didn't have a big toe on your foot, it'd be pretty damn hard to move fluidly because mm-hmm. it, people underestimate how big of a role that big toe plays. So if your big toe can't extend and it's stiff and it starts to go on an angle, the big tendon and the strong muscle that flexes your big toe and gives you that ability to put pressure through your big toe and stabilize turns into a muscle that pulls your big toe even more crooked, right? Because mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's pulling straight down through the joint and then that joint gets turned on an angle, it's all of a sudden pulling that joint even more crooked. And I think that's why... So it literally changes the force vector of the muscle. Yeah. The muscle becomes something different. The, exactly. the role of the, the function of the muscle becomes something different than it was intended for. And it plays a role to actually make the... This is where I think you see these insanely gnarly bunions that are so, so whack. crazy that you're like, how did you get to this point? It's, mm-hmm. it's so... And I've been seeing it more and more in younger people, like that, uh, that medical resident that we have in. I'm not going to say his name, but... Um, he's not very old. He's probably in his thirties and he has pretty significant bunions. Um, and I, and I think, you know, cleats, I think play a big role. I was talking to him and he's like, yeah, I spent a lot of time in cleats. And Mm -hmm. I I really think, um, you know, I was getting, I didn't have like gnarly bunions, but there was a big toe angle there at my feet that wasn't supposed to be there. And I think if I look back to the rugby cleats that I wore and I, a lot of times I wore, um, you know, playing it back, I wore soccer cleats, and soccer cleats are so narrow and so pointed. I really think that that was a big cause for oh, yeah. why. And I couldn't wait to take off my cleats. It, like, it makes perfect sense now. Hindsight, I'm like, I hated wearing cleats. I would wear them because they gave me grip, but they would suck. By the end of a game, you're like, my feet are destroyed. And yeah. you just think it's like a normal thing. You're like, oh, yeah, that's just a side effect of wearing cleats. Why don't companies make better damn cleats? Well, well yeah. Wear them. <laughs> you're supposed to be spaced between your toes. Like, that's another, like... 
so if something's not letting you have space in your choice for the majority of your waking hours when you're actually ambulating around, mm-hmm. that's a problem. So, so yeah, you're not, you're essentially like the shoe not only like actually puts you in the position of a bunion, but it actually prevents your foot from actually working like it's supposed to yeah. um, with this normal mechanism of push off and everything. Well, it's easy to underestimate how how big of a conversations you can develop upstream by just having a big toe that doesn't move. I remember Perry Nicholson talked about that big toe mojo. And at the start when he said that, I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's just a big toe. Now I understand what he's saying. So thank you, Perry. You're ahead of your time, man. Oh, exactly. (laughs) Because I understand now mechanically, if you, it's like having a fault at your foundation. We make the analogy a lot in the seminar saying your foot is like the foundation of a building. If the foundation sucks, everything upstream is going to be limited or, or weak. And your big toe is one of those foundational elements where if you don't have that big toe extension, you're going to be compensating upstream until you actually address that big toe problem. Well, even look at something as, like, look at a push-up. People wouldn't think of uh, the big toe in a push-up. Yes. But in order to create a push-up and a split squat, those are two. But a push-up's even, like, crazier because it's, like, it's an upper body, theoretically an upper body exercise. Well, I mean, to me, it's a core exercise. But mm-hmm. um, your big toe allows you to actually create that stability downstream because those are the only two. <laughs> like, basically, you have two arms and then you have two toe boxes that you're stabilizing on yeah so what are you doing if your toe doesn't move like that yeah. like you're probably again either playing into the bunions you have um not getting or you're you're on something else than what it should be you're not on like a nice stable platform to do this push-up from mm-hmm. so it, it plays a part in like obviously walking around but many other things your your big toes playing a, a huge role so well i think another thing to talk about too on the topic of shoes and bunions so we talked about two factors that are big ones where the shoe, the shoe width and the fact that it goes to a point compresses your toe. So it facilitates that first angulation of the big toe. Number two, most shoes prevent your big toe from extending. So mm-hmm. they stiffen up that joint, which also facilitates the bunions. Um, but let's talk about how most shoes have a friggin' heel lift. If yeah. the heel is higher than the forefoot, your foot is not only being compressed and your big toe restricted, but you're literally shifting your weight to the forward part of the shoe. So you're putting more exactly. pressure on that deformity area. So that's another, and obviously the more exaggerated the heel, um, the worse that effect is, right? Like look at a woman's high heel. That's the worst so, example of it. You know, and we're not going to harp too much on this because I'm sure everyone's heard us talk about this before, but that is literally one of the strangest pieces of clothing humans have ever worn in history, um, aside from maybe Chinese foot binding and corsets, because it, it is on par with those two things. It deforms your feet. So not only are you putting, jamming the feet in a, in a rigid tri- uh, pointed a triangle. triangle, but you're also distributing the weight evenly from the foot, where, if it was flat, now to that front of the foot, yeah. where it's also jamming it in. <laughs> so it's like the double whammy. And, I, and you, again, you can make that same argument for like male dress shoes, which we've done in the past as well. So, and I think that like talking about that leads nice into the ankle too. And that's just one fact, another factor that plays a part. Well, let's talk about that because that's another factor. Mm-hmm. So we talked about big toe, we talked about shoes. Let's talk about ankle and let's talk about hip because those are two things upstream that, that will affect those bunions, right? If you walk with your feet externally, if you walk like a duck, mm-hmm. okay, sometimes that's, most of the time that's habitual. It's hilarious when people are like, uh, yeah. You know, I walk with my feet turned out. It's just how I've done it for a long time. My hip's too tight, so I can't walk with my feet straight. And then I just tell them, okay, can you put your feet straight right now? Yeah. How does that feel? It's fine. Feels so you, all you have different. to do is consciously put yeah. your feet straight. It's like, yeah, you might have a little bit more tension, but you can make that your default by just consciously making yourself do it. I used to walk with my feet turned out too. And then yeah. I was like, okay, I just got to walk. I remember you even told me that. Yeah. No, exactly. Thing. Like someone, you went for, um, I think it was like foot, you went for a a foot issue and the person just said walk with your feet straight and yeah like yeah it solved a lot of problems <laughs> and then i love these people uh, like on instagram saying like oh look at this high level athlete and look at the way he's standing in this interview 
uh, he's, his feet are turned out, and it's like, okay, well, whatever. Like, okay. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's a good thing it to do. And, it, and, it, and it's irrelevant. Like, how are you walking? And, and especially when you start walking. Like, yeah, I sometimes find myself standing in a bunch of different positions. That's yeah. fine. But it's like, what are you doing for the most amount of time? What are you doing when you're actually moving and ambulating? Because yeah. walking with your feet turned out when you're actually ambulating is not an efficient strategy as a human. It just exactly. isn't. Exactly. It's like, That's if science. we... Hashtag science, man. If we put our the wheels on our car at 45 degree angles and tried to drive with them. That's a great analogy. The car might go, but is it a good way to use our car? Probably not. Like, yeah. probably oh, and then it's like, tires, hey, look at this guy. He's driving with this car sideways and it's, it's working. Okay, great. <laughs> like, that's fine. Yeah, I agree. But and even like the whole foot industry, like, um, like when I worked in a footwear store, they have this thing called the Brannick device. Everyone's seen one of these. It's like this foot measuring device. It's hilarious where, when you actually look at this thing, it is so silly. It makes no sense. I don't know why we still use them. The whole sizing system with footwear, like when we make shoes, we're going to make it very, very simple. There's going to be five to eight sizes. It's going to stretch to accommodate the difference. Um, and it's going to be extremely simple to understand what size your friggin' shoe should be. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this Brannick device literally measures the width of your shoe from the base of your big toe. So the person that invented the device to measure feet to fit into <laughs> shoes doesn't even understand that the widest part of your foot should be the tips of your toes and not the ball of your foot. It's just a beautiful <laughs> representation of how dumb the whole footwear industry is right now in terms of how they make shoes, how they size shoes. It makes no sense. It's so yeah. it's just crazy. Um, so, so I think the moral of the story with that is, so a couple things to wrap up the bunions part. One, bunions are no more hereditary than they are than knee osteoarthritis is, right? It's not hereditary. It can be familial. It is not genetic. There's no gene that gives you a bunion. Um, and it's not, even though shoes we feel are the primary driver for why a bunion deformity starts, it is by no means the only factor involved. And it's not the only reason you have huge bunions or, or different bunions on side to side, right? Like everyone wears the yeah. same shoes. So if you have different bunions, there's obviously other factors involved, but and, and we acknowledge that, right? The big toe mobility is a huge one. What kind ankle of, mobility. Ankle mobility, hip mobility, the position your feet are in when you walk. Your habits and patterns, your the way you walk, like all of these things play into it. And, um, and, and it's almost chicken or the egg. It's like, are you walking, are you rolling off on the inside of your foot because your big toe doesn't move? Or are you walking that way, which causes your big toe not to move? I think it's everyone wears shoes. Default, like base parameter Everyone wears shoes, and the likelihood is that you're wearing poor footwear that is pointed because mm -hmm. that's the majority. It's almost every shoe that's out there right now. So I think the most logical hypothesis is that footwear, pointed footwear begins the bunion deformity. It kicks off a series of compensations where your big toe doesn't move, so you walk in a bit of a different way. Your ankle gets locked up because we all, you know, if you wear heel footwear, you're automatically never exploring in range dorsiflexion. So a lot of things can contribute to making the bunion worse, but it doesn't negate the fact that Pointed footwear that literally is a contributing looks like factor. a bunion is a is I, I yeah I think it's the primary contributing factor that kicks yeah. everything off, but it's not the only in, factor. In, not in, it's too simplistic. In, no, exactly, and not in every case too, right? Like so, like let's say you were walking with a duck, like a duck from from day one, that yeah. can be a big factor regardless of whether like yeah. so. But like you say, it, it's because everything like nothing's ever black or white. But yes. I would say that's a big that's a big trend with this whole like our goal with this whole myth busting episode is not only to to address and have a conversation about these popular myths that we feel are false and misinformation, but also to show that like these aren't just black and white issues. You're not just one side or the other, and they're not very. There's so many variables when it, when it comes to the human body that these these myths. There are certain part of these myths that are easy to take as truth because there is some logic there. But the base premise that saying of saying just bunions are genetic, 
The problem with that is that when people think that, they think they can't do anything about it. When mm-hmm. in reality, you can do a lot to mm-hmm. avoid bunions. You can do a lot to cure. I used to say treat, but now I say cure because I think you can get rid of bunions. And it's actually... Depending on what level. Yeah, and let's, let's talk about that. Like, when, to get rid of bunions, the way I've been explaining it is that it's actually very simple. But it's not easy. Right? Mm-hmm. Just like going on a diet is very simple. Don't eat carbs. Eat less sugar eat real food, but it's not easy because we're all addicted to it, right? We're all addicted to shoes. And that's, if you understand that shoes are the primary, one of the primary drivers for why bunions exist and getting rid of your bunions, you know, protect, correct, develop, protect is ditch the shoes that compress your toes together. And when you Mm -hmm. look in your shoe wardrobe and see that all of your favorite shoes or, or all of your shoes actually do that, that's a very hard thing to change, right? So unless you're committed to saying, I understand now that bunions aren't genetic, I understand that footwear is a primary driver and that I have to get rid of the footwear that compresses my toes in order to, you know, protect my foot from the bunions getting worse. The correct part is put toe spreaders on and there's only two variables when it comes to correcting a bunion. It's time and position. Okay. How much time are you spending with your toes fanned out? How much time are you spending with your toes compressed together? Mm -hmm. Whatever one you're spending more time with is going to win the battle. And then you got to work on like actively correcting some of the, these all these other yeah. factors mobilize that are, your foot mobilize your ankle walk with your feet straight there's a little you're yeah. right and and that depends on what get is your the big toe factor. mobility back yeah. all these other things so it is always multifactorial um so instead of saying bunions are genetic say bunions are, are massively multifactorial but they can be uh they can be affected they can be pro- the biggest thing is not letting them get out of control the biggest thing is catching them before they even start or catching them before they get too out of control and the surgery is not the only answer because people yeah. think that anyone that tells you bunions are genetic and that you have to get surgery could potentially be making money by cutting you open and, and surgically correcting a bunion, right? It yeah. doesn't, yes, if you have bunions that are so bad, your big toe is doing a U-turn, mm, maybe you need to do something in order to get relief, right? Maybe surgery is an option because the, that bunion has gotten so far, so far advanced. But I think for the most part, people need to, and one of the problems, this this exploded in my mind when, when I had a patient, like it was made really obvious to me. I had a patient that has had two bunionectomies, has had two surgeries on her big toe to get rid of bunions. She was never told that her shoes were causing bunions. Mm-hmm. This is a problem. She literally came into the clinic wearing heels. She's a real estate agent. And I'm yeah. like, lady, do you, do you like getting these surgeries? Like, obviously this lady is just trying to do what, what she thinks is good for her body, but she was never actually informed about that. And that's a big problem, right? If, you, if you're correcting a problem without ever educating people about why the problem started, we're looking upstream of the problem and saying, why is it happening? Like, this the is problem. very simple. And I like... And clearly that surgeon's not doing it on purpose. Just they don't no, know. How does just, that person not know? Well, it's it's dialed in focus on, on the specific task at hand, which is the surgery. But um, I think that if you're doing something, and again, this is more of a broader uh, topic of another day. If you're doing something, let's say like a, a surgery, you should probably understand some factors um, for the patients in terms of like, why are these what's causing all these people to have to come to me? Yes, like, I agree. Or I do a surgery. should be curious. What, yeah, like curiosity. Or if I do a surgery, what can I, what will prevent them needing future surgery yes. so this doesn't keep happening again? Or, right, because I want to, like, I've done a surgery now. What can I do to actually improve the the effectiveness of this surgery, this procedure that I just did? Mm-hmm. And, so, make it, and make it last long term. Like, on what both is, ends of it. Yeah. Because it's, up, it's, it's to their benefit to... Look into this at a baseline level. Yeah, it makes them look right. better if the surgery is successful long term. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it's, I, I think that's a, a pretty good um, picture of of how siloed the healthcare system can get in terms of the surgeon does the carpentry, the physio does the rehab, 
they don't talk to each other. So there's zero flow through of information of, okay, what is this person doing? And then when they go for their six month, one year follow up, how is the outcome? Oh, mm-hmm. when this physio treats that person and does this stuff, they, though, those patients do a lot better. Hmm. I wonder what that person's doing. Yeah. I wonder if I can make sure that all the patients I do surgeries for do that kind of rehab because clearly it works. Whereas yeah. rehab at place B where they get ultrasound and these little wimpy clamshells on the, on the ground, that person doesn't do so well. That person's having more trouble with their knee rehab. Oh, there's a pattern here. You know, like it's in your best interest. Oh, how about it looks good on me when somebody does good after my surgery? That's good. Like that's good. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Like, so, 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 okay. So that was bunions. You can correct bunions. You have to, in order to correct them, protect, correct, get rid of the shitty shoes, Spend some time opening up the, the toes by wearing toe spares or interlacing your fingers between your toes for you know a good period of time. And then systematically target whatever issues are most relevant to you, whether that's your big toe mobility, whether that's your ankle mobility, whether that's what you're doing with your body during the day in terms of sitting or, or hip, hip issues. Um, so they're not genetic. They can be offset. They can be cured. You can get rid of them. Um, yeah, that's bunions. Hopefully that clarifies things. So I think a good next one um, is flat feet are genetic. This is another one that people just seem to take in as truth. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. I got flat feet. I was born with them. That's it. Or I've, the, the standard answer um, comment I've is I've them. always had flat feet. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, did you always have flat feet? That's one thing. But um, the one thing I try to get across to, to patients is that although artrite is very much genetic, and, but uh, flat feet are not genetic. And if we define yes. flat feet, what people, what we should define as flat feet is feet that are uncontrolled feet that are perpetually, um, quote pronated. unquote, stuck in, in, a, in a pronated position. Mm-hmm. And, and you have the inability to control that pronation or get out of that pronation um, statically or dynamically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when we talk about arch height, some people have very low arches, but you can have... This is the conundrum. But you need to have an arch. Humans are designed to have an arch. That's why we yeah. build bridges with arches because it's a strong way to distribute load. That's what our foot is designed to have. Although, like you said, it's a continuum. Some you can have, have high a, ones. Some people have low ones. You can ha- so you can have a very low arch, um, bordering on what would look like almost like a, a quote unquote flat foot, but it can be a very very strong and controlled arch. Mm-hmm. That's that's very very possible, and I've seen it. You can also have a high arch that is a flat foot. And people say, well, what do you mean? You can have something that you can naturally have a arch on the higher side of things or or somewhere in between and not be able to control pronation and collapse in through that foot. So that's also exists. Mm -hmm. So the real question is, well, okay, what's happening here? It's the inability to control that arch or control that pronation. That is the bigger factor. And that is multifactorial as well. That's also multifactorial. And we talk a lot about um, the hips helping to control the arch of the foot, right? If mm-hmm. you create torque, my favorite thing to do with people that walk in and say, oh, I've had flat feet forever or it's genetic or whatever is, okay, keep your feet flat on the floor, put your feet shoulder width apart, push your knees apart, uh, away from each other, and see what happens to the arch of your foot. And inevitably, almost everyone that I've done that with, pretty much everyone that I can remember, um, gets some semblance of an arch forming when they externally work, when they consciously create torque at their hip. So it's a good demonstration yeah. to those people to say, did you know that your hips control your arch? And if your hips don't work, your arches are never going to be able to move, never going to be able to be controlled. Um, and it's almost like this flat foot epidemic, which is causing everyone to be put into external support, 
right? Orthotics, which we'll talk about how that is not, you know, I think we've talked about that before. We did a whole podcast on it, but we'll just reiterate how that's not the solution for this problem is really a bigger indicator of the fact that everyone's hips are, are not working, right? Yeah. Why? Because everyone sits all day and this is like the big root cause problem. It's like, okay, yeah, sitting is worse for you than smoking in terms of general health consequences. But when we look at the specific consequences of sitting, when your hip mobility goes to shit and you lose the ability to use that hip joint like it's supposed to be used, one way that that materializes is flat feet or the inability, the inability to create and control an arch in your foot. And control, it's, it's basically the inability to control global rotational forces. Yeah. So that generate that stem from upstream proximally. So proximally from your core down to your hips and all the way down to the floor. So if you're again without getting into the biomechanics of that all, what it will often do is, uh, as Nick just said, like whenever I get a, a patient in and, and I'll show them how to pick up the pick up their arch. So mm-hmm. it, it requires a little bit of cueing. There's different cues for different people. Some people respond to certain things better. But once they show show me that oh I can actually control this arch thing below me. Once they see that, they, a very common thing I hear is, oh, that's that's hard, that's hard, kind of hard work to stand like this. Okay, you're fighting against it, exactly. resistance. It, it's hard for you now because you're not used to that. You're used yeah. to hanging out passively in, in, on certain tissues and not, other, and not using other tissues to support yourself actively. Mm-hmm. So yes, that feels hard at the start. But if we practice that and becomes habitual, then it won't feel as hard like anything else in life. Like as we, you know, just as you exercise, as you do things at the gym, put your, put your feet where you want them to. As you're standing, put your feet where you want them to. Like these, it's just like, that's like anything. If you breathe like shit, oh, it's hard to, to use my diet. Yeah. It's hard to use your diaphragm. Yeah, but the more you a, do it, then it's, it's not as bad. Pattern. Exactly. And it's, it's like, a, I always tell people, if you sat on a couch for 10 years, you would be weak as crap. You would be stiff. Your hips would be super stiff. Your muscles would be weak. Just standing up against gravity would be hard. Very hard. If your feet have been on a couch, okay, if they've been supported in this big slab of cushioning where none of the muscles have had to do anything because they've, the arch has been supported with the external support from the shoe or an orthotic, the minute you start to use your feet again, it's going to be hard work. Just like getting up off that couch. You're weak. You're stiff. All the muscles are locked up and tight. They haven't have to do anything, so they're asleep, basically. Yeah. Um, and so what are you left with? Well, you're left resting your whole body weight on a hammock of fascia. We call the plantar fascia. And then you start to get discomfort there. Well, big surprise. It's like you have zero ability to align the muscles of your, the, the bones, rather, of your foot to create that stable arch. Like, arches by their very shape are very strong. Right, so all you got to do is cinch up the arch and make sure that those bones are aligned correctly, and then it's it it distributes the load on your heel and on the front of your foot. And if like, you can't align that, you're just resting on your fascia. That's so true. Like, how about how about the fact that we're unloaded? That just made me think. Like, most people are unloaded most of the time yeah. at, at at the place where we're supposed to load most of the time. So, yeah. so we're supposed to load our feet. We're supposed to be on our feet quite a bit. Um, but then we're not on our feet for most of the time. So then that creates, again, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's effortful. But again, the, the, the thing back to that genetic thing, it's like the big thing, it's not genetic. Like this is <laughs> I know. like, yeah, it it's dependent so on what you, 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 you do with your body, how your mobility is, mm-hmm. how you can control your feet, the strength in your feet, the strength and control in your hips, your proximal stability. Again, multifactorial. People don't like that answer, but it's multifactorial. Mm-hmm. It's not genetic. Genetic being, saying it's genetic is a huge cop out, like the bunions thing. It's a I cop agree. out. And let people not deal with it because they're like, oh, it's genetic. I can't do anything about it. 
Yeah. Like, well, no, that's no. false. Whoever told you that or whatever gave you that impression is part of the reason why you have all these problems because you've basically determined that you can't do anything to fix them. So why would you seek out ways to correct these issues? And they also happen to most of the time have a convenient solution in the form of a passive structure to support these things that you can't change yourself. Well, that couch analogy is, is so hilarious when you make the parallel of orthotics. It's like, okay, you've been sitting on a couch for 10 years, you're deconditioned to shit, you're super stiff. Um, instead of making you stronger and opening up your joints and building muscles, let's just put you in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. That's basically exactly. what it is. It's basically what I thought. We have a solution like, for you. Yeah. We can allow you to. <laughs> Cost a lot of money. Re- we've realized that you can't stand anymore, so we have a solution to you. We we can we can allow you to sit all the time. Yeah. Um, That's and crazy. So basically, what I'm saying, we can unload you all of the time. And we don't want to demonize right. orthotics because people that are putting people on orthotics or making orthotics, these are not bad human beings. They're very they're awesome human beings that are trying to help others we're just uh, the whole industry just like the physio industry kind of is just misguided and stuck in these old ways and sometimes that again it's like sometimes there's a role for them like we yeah. talked about but yeah. oftentimes that role is a temporary role and again anybody anybody who argues the opposite we're, we just want to to take this global view on things and say in most cases um, you know, it's, first of all, it's not genetic and you can do th- a lot of things that don't revolve around using passive supports to, to correct it. Okay, That's so flat feet are genetic. Someone's got pancake feet that are just stuck on the ground. They have zero ability to form an arch. Where do you go? The first thing is let's take a look at what shoes you're wearing, because if you continue to facilitate that lack of loading, the problem is going to continue. Like mm-hmm. one thing I tell people is just. Okay, how much time, do you spend time barefoot at home? No, okay, that's where we're going to start. Oh, but it hurts to spend time barefoot. Okay, can you do five minutes? Because I've already been talking to you for five minutes when you're standing and you're barefoot and you're not whining. So mm-hmm. you can do five minutes. Start with that. Start loading your feet. Loading, yes. And and at the same time, start resetting some of the joints and the muscles. That's where this lacrosse ball release comes in. It's so simple. It's almost silly how simple it is, right? Roll your foot up and down and side to side for two minutes, a couple times a day on a lacrosse ball, every day on your feet. Super simple. It seems almost too simple to actually work, but it works because you're resetting. You're getting sensory input into your foot. You're resetting the tight muscles. You're opening up and articulating joints of your foot. It really makes a big difference. So spend time barefoot, open up the arch of your foot, or or open up your foot, like mobility-wise in terms of the joints and the muscles. Um, and then start spending time barefoot, loading your foot and then discover, kind of look upstream. Like, well, you know, obviously it depends with every patient, what you do to troubleshoot and, and find where the issues are can be different with everyone. But usually people's ankles are locked up. Usually their hips don't work. Their the inability to rotate their hips takes away their ability to control their arch. So that's, that's usually the first place I go. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? No, exactly. Like the, the big, the biggest thing in all this is just like address the things that need to be addressed. Like the goal of this is not to like you know, guide you completely on that. It's just like address the things that need to be addressed. So you don't have to rely on something, um, externally. And I think that brings us to the next point of like, um, you, one of the myths is like, you need some sort of arch support, uh, foot support, uh, motion control in your shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it relates well to this flat, flat foot myth. Yep, I agree. Um, so, so like a lot of people say like, you want to be, able, you want to be controlling that prona- pronation, right. Um, in the foot, but what that doesn't like, what a shoe with a big support in it does, um, is it doesn't allow your foot to act to be dynamic the way it should be. Well, right? you're taking away, you're you're demonizing pronation as something that's bad when really pronation is necessary. Mm-hmm. It is it's there for a reason. Your foot is designed to pronate. It's a shock absorption strategy. It's a um, ground surface buffering strategy. So if you can't pronate, you're missing out on a huge amount of shock absorption at the foot. Exactly. So pronation is necessary. 
you need to be able to control pronation. Supination is also necessary. Yeah. So creating a rigid lever for, for propulsion is also necessary. Mm-hmm. So if you can't do that and you're perpetually stuck in pronation, that's not good. So a shoe well, that if you're perpetually stuck in supination, also not good. It's equally big problem. Also not good. So when like that is almost almost what a what these like big supportive structures and shoes do is, is like stick you in. It's like, hey, we're going to put you in a more neutral or more supinated position um, and take you out of that pronated position or, or prevent you from going into it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're putting the foot in one rigid position. rigid position, <laughs> and know, now it can't transition from pronation to supination and back to pronation yeah. dynamically every step we take. Like, people so this need is motion control, but they need it from their own friggin' muscles. They don't no, need exactly. it from a, an external support that locks them in one. Cast position, and that that really takes a has a big impact on shock absorption because if you if you take something that's supposed to naturally move with like a tide as you, you you know as you're walking dynamically absorb shock create rigidity absorb shock create rigidity now you're saying okay be the same static object so now we're impacting the ground and you're not you're not allowed to dissipate these these forces when you're like that so I think that. It's just a lack of understanding of how complex a human machine is, I think, is what it is. Just but again, you take a superficial look at it yeah. from a biomechanics standpoint. Yeah, if something is flat and you, you don't think being flat all the time is good, which it's not, this, uh, an easy solution is support it artificially. Problem is, is that, like we said, that negates the requirement for that position and takes away any stimulus to work on the control of that position. Exactly. And if you're, again, if you study what, what's supposed to happen naturally, then I don't understand why you would um, go the route of like putting everybody you see in in support of um, shoes or, or orthotics or things like that. Mm-hmm. If you understand the foot is supposed to be dynamic, like we just talked about, then why would you prescribe that for everybody? If, if you're somebody in the in the in the health world dealing with these types of things, yeah, it they just, just have to understand it better. And I think yeah. that's, like that's what our mission is, right? Is get people to understand health professionals, physicians, lay people, everyone. Everyone needs to understand their body better because that's how we prevent doing the wrong treatment or discovering what doesn't work and what works. And I think when you look at the foot as this insanely complex, crazy designed and well-engineered structure, um, you know, this project that we're going to do in 2020 to make a piece of footwear is going to come at it from a very different perspective, right? Because when you understand that the foot inherently is perfect in how it works, right? A lot of people don't have perfect feet because we've done a lot of things to, um, to damage them. But when you're looking at a footwear as simply something that protects the foot from damage, okay, and we'll talk about cushioning because, like, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the fact that cushioning sometimes is not a bad thing in footwear when you're talking about the sport of running. Um, but when you look at footwear as something that's just literally an exoskeleton around your foot that protects your foot from getting cut and scraped, and that is it, um, then actually making a shoe is more about material science of what is the best material to cover this and how do we make this thing fit the best and most functionally than it is about, oh, what EVA midsole or what support or what this or what that. Like it's actually very simple and you can spend a lot more money on the materials you use in a piece of footwear to make them more durable, more resistant to cut, more resistant to puncture. Um, so I really think the, the FC 1.0 is going to be a, the struggle is going to be to make it look appealing enough to people so that it doesn't look like a sock, but it's, and, it's going to be yeah. an exciting project. And it needs to start early. Like, yeah. cause again, people, again, it just like, kids, that's kids is the most important market, I think. Because yeah. Cause if you, if you give somebody, if you give somebody a product 
it basically is taking away barriers to being able to use your your body or your <clears> feet effectively. So, but like we like we, it's it's all about how we implement the the use of that, right? Because again, you can abuse that or you can use it. So it starts early, and you need you need people like that, like you say, kids. They need to start this way. And again, it goes in conjunction with all the other things we're talking about. Like if you're unloaded all the time, like you're gonna you know, be weak. <laughs> yeah, it's just again, it's it's complex, but. So, we talked about so motion control um, being required for feet that pronate is is a kind of a, a loss leader because it's you need motion control by using your own muscles because pronation is required but you need to find a balance so you gotta if an arch is collapsed we talked about how it's not genetic you can fix it um, you can work on it and how there's a lot of variables behind that it's not just kind of like one thing that you gotta fix uh, we talked about how motion control is not required for feet that pronate because you need to be able to pronate. And putting a, a hard stop there, stopping you from pronating, gives you a lot of problems mechanically and it facilitates more compensations. kind of gets you deeper down that road of compensations. I think the next thing to talk about is a lot of people think that you need... It's hilarious when people... You ask them, okay, what kind of footwear do you wear um, at work? Oh, I wear dress shoes. Okay, so you already know that that's a rigid shoe, probably with the heel lift, probably ends in a narrow point. Say, okay, what kind of shoes do you wear to train or for sports? And so I wear, I spend a lot of money on shoes. I, wear, I buy really good shoes. And people are like proud to say that. And they say, okay, well, what kind of shoes do you wear? And they bust it out. It's like a $250 ASIC Cayano with a crazy big pad of gel that doesn't allow any rotational capacity of the foot because they sell you a torsional stability as well as a benefit. So people's perception of a good shoe is really far off what an actual good shoe is, right? A good shoe is something that protects your foot. It doesn't affect how your foot functions. Um, and so... One thing that people are stuck on is, oh, I need cushioning. I need, I get really good cushioning in my shoes because I need cushioning. Um, and and then you say, well, why do you need cushioning? And say, well, the ground's hard, right? And then you have the conversation about, okay, well, you know that our bodies are, are our bodies are the same body that we had 5,000, 10,000 years ago. And we're adapted to be able to function barefoot with very minimal protection over our feet. Um, one of the big things that people mention is, well, the ground's way harder now than it used to be. Yeah. And, and I think... I used to say, well, did you know that arid, dry soil in the African Sahara is basically concrete? And, and we that's kind of one of the first places where we adapted to run in order to persist in sun. So it's mm -hmm. really not, saying we're not adapted to run hard surfaces is in and of itself doesn't is not actually a true statement. Yeah. But I stopped saying that because it, I realized that that is actually the wrong conversation to have, right? Yeah. The hardness of the ground, you know, we always talk about, the ground is as hard as you interact with it. So if you're moving poorly and you're not absorbing impact with the mechanisms we have in our body that allow us to do that. So mechanisms in your foot to absorb shock. Mechanisms uh, like your Achilles tendon, which is designed to be this huge spring to absorb impact forces. If you're interacting with the ground poorly, the ground will be insanely hard on your body, regardless of how firm or dense that ground is. So I think it has yeah. to be more a conversation of how are you moving instead of, or how are you running? Because running is where it comes Depends up if we're talking about running or walking because like running is one small subset of, of, of most people who, who wouldn't run and, and who could also benefit from going in less cushioned shoes. Okay. So let's talk about and walking. One let's of the things I always walking. say with, with minimalist shoes, it's like anything walk before you run. There's mm -hmm. a reason why we say that. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's the same thing. Like people who don't run are still walking around in huge cushioned shoes. Yeah. So there's no need to be doing that. And there might be a need, again, in short term, if you've been doing that for years and years and years, it's going to take some transitioning as well. Yeah. But the long-term fix and solution is to start somewhere and to start walking with um, with more minimalist shoes or, you know, going barefoot as much as you can. 
In your everyday walking shoes, get rid of cushioning. That's yeah. a pretty and and do it based on your tolerance. That's so if it really really hurts initially, you're probably you know a little bit of discomfort. Being perfectly comfortable, the old sitting on a couch analogy is is overrated. So we're not saying walk through pain, but the discomfort, like you even mentioned when you first went to went to barefoot when we we're in the clinic, you were hitting the ground pretty hard. Like you could almost feel your feet kind of smacking the ground. So you're you're not buffering those impacts. And then by spending time barefoot, you literally just got better. You got yeah. better at moving and interacting smoother and more softly with the ground. It's just because you're you're taking you're 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 getting way more sensory sensory feedback from the ground. So what I realized is like, oh shit, I wear shoes like most of my waking hours when I'm at work. Oh no! The, I wasn't realizing how I was actually like walking around, just day to day walking around from bed to bed, showing exercises. Yeah. Then I take them off. Oh, oh! I'm actually landing hard. Oh, my feet are starting to hurt a little bit. In in like my my, I was getting a, like some minor plantar fasciitis for the first week or two, and then as I worked on stuff and I got more tolerable. I haven't been wearing shoes for two and a half years now, but. At work. Put it, at work. <laughs> It'd be crazy if you did it all year. But but again, it was like, yes, there was a two-week period for myself where I was like, oh, like this is interesting. So mm-hmm. that's, again, I listened to that. I didn't say, I'm going to ignore that and I'm just going to keep, uh, you know, just keep doing it. I, I, you know, worked out my feet, et cetera, all the things we talk about. But the fact is that it gives you that feedback and a lot of people can, now like, like we, we walk around in minimalist shoes um, in, um, you know, in cities, concrete all over the place and i'll go around you know even we're in a city doing a course or something touring around walking around for five six hours a day is completely feasible now yeah. and again like that's I another you it feels i can't even go back to shoes that are yeah. built up it literally feels weird like there's yeah. a, i have to almost readjust in a bad direction in order to wear shoes that have a ton of cushioning because i feel it just feels strange right no, exactly as strange as switching to minimal shoes feels for someone that's been in cushion shoes that's how strange it feels when you're used to being barefoot or in or in uh minimal like human human shoes going back to built up shoes it feels very awkward so the 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 key point is that it doesn't matter how it fundamentally doesn't matter how hard the the ground is it depends on how you're interacting with the ground yes now the caveat to that is the the ground also does matter yes because we're running so i think with walking but even like like with walking too like if you're walking let's say you're at like your you know your son's soccer tournament for the whole for the entire day and you pop your shoes off and you're walking on the you know on sidelines back and forth like you probably get away with like walking way longer on that like nice soft you know especially if it just rained a nice soft grass like well manicured like that feels like like golden to your feet Mm -hmm. um you can get away with that versus walking six hours on the downtown streets of a city mm-hmm. so the ground does matter but it depends fundamentally on how you're interacting with that ground and then and again tolerance that's the again, one that, it's a that's tissue the tolerance variable it's yeah like the ground only matters because you don't have the, the tolerance yet to, to move that way but right? how you tolerance. move matters most most your tissue tolerance determines how much you can yes um determines yeah. how important the ground hardness is yeah, and it determines how much you can take of that of any given surface. Yeah. So even that's a good way of wording it, right? So even if you're somebody who's not used to ever going barefoot, even the grass for six hours barefoot might be too much for you. Yeah. Again, the surface is very soft. Again, it's not a question of that. It's it's how how are your tissues allowing you to be to be on this? And again, so the same person might say, "Hey, I can go." So it's more that you're loading your feet against gravity. You're loading than your it feet is about on what surface you're walking on. On any given surface, the surface does matter, but. What matters is how you're interacting with it and how your tissues adapt. So, like, if we took it, like you say, to running now, okay, yes. So, we, we have two scenarios. Scenario where you have a perfectly manicured field that um, is that is very moist and not arid, very, very soft, and you want to run 5K on that. 
right beside that, there's a um, concrete truck, concrete like Costco flooring, like yeah. the hardest <laughs> cos- concrete or like marble. Yeah. Okay. So you have two different surfaces. So yes. It does matter. Those two different things matter. But how are you act- interacting on either of those surfaces? Is the most important. Yeah. And maybe I can tolerate, um, you know, 50% more loading on this surface versus this surface. But it doesn't mean I can't load on that surface. It means mm-hmm. I need to adjust my, how the, the amount I'm doing on that. And I need to interact with it well too. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so again, and I would argue doing a bit of loading. Okay. So you can't, you can run five kilometers on the grass yeah. without problems. When you go to the concrete, it's 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 harder to run that distance without feeling it more. Yeah, it doesn't mean never run on that. It just no. means you you don't have tolerance yet to that, it's and maybe different. you're not going to get it anytime soon. So maybe there's some cushioning warranted, like a small midsole, to warrant you being able to run. Because the fact of the matter is, most people can't run on grass all day. So if you have yeah. to run on concrete, maybe there's some midsole cushioning that you need in order to be able to do your five k run. But training on that concrete with no cushioning. Is it's also almost beneficial. like a self-corrective thing yeah. to make sure you're running properly. That builds up the the underlying tissues, mm-hmm. um, control, and strength that's needed for you to run any given distance. Mm-hmm. And again, if it, like the real like the distance is like irrelevant. And again, we talked about this in the running um, that running conversation we had. Maybe you can't run that five k without. Maybe you do need a little bit of cushioning for that same given distance. And I think but, a little bit a little bit is an important part of that statement because a little bit goes along. You way. go to like yeah. a two inch thick pad of cushioning, you have zero feedback as to yeah. how the hell you're running. No, so, that's not good. So either. when we talk about cushioning, we're talking about a slight layer of cushioning for someone that hasn't yet developed a tissue tolerance to run on concrete. Um, but I think the biggest thing to get across with this whole thing is saying the ground is hard now and we never used to run on hard ground is is not a true statement. And it's just a short-sighted argument. It's, yeah, it's just it's the wrong conversation. It's how you're moving that's most important. And then the tissue tolerance factor is where a slight bit of cushioning can come into your shoe. But don't put so much cushioning that it takes away the feedback of how yeah. you're running. And it's, it's just, again, one of those like cop-out arguments where it's like, aha, I've got them. The ground is hard these days, yeah. and it wasn't. And it's <laughs> yeah, like, I, I feel like I'm the smartest <laughs> man alive. But it's like, well, okay, like talk about it. Like what is yeah. your, you know, and, and you it's have to. It's not black and white, right? I it's think, like anything. And we're not claiming yeah. to know everything. We're just seeing what we see on a daily basis and what we see on ourselves. Like I think you and me both, we test shit on ourselves first. We see what works. If someone tells us something that's been working well, we're not going to use it with patients. We're going to try it on ourselves and mm-hmm. put it through the rigors and tell friends to try it. And if it works, then it's like, okay, let's maybe try it with a few patients. Oh, we're getting really good results with this. There's a pattern. Hmm, that's yeah. interesting. Maybe it's something that we should be talking about. And critically think about it. Like critically think about all these things you're talking about. Like it just, it just you know, you, you dive deeper into some of these, into somebody, like sometimes it's these little things that people tell you. Like I had a lady in yesterday who's like, whose back, whose low back was really painful. She's getting, she's going out and she used to be a runner. Now she's going out walking. This is a little like side story, but I, a little probing question that I may not like, I I asked her cause she's like, Oh, you know, I I went on a walk and my, my back started hurting again. It was feeling good for a while. But then I I just, I was like, Oh really? And then I was like, wait, how, how much did you walk? And she said four hours. She went out for a four-hour walk. And I said, oh. So, <laughs> oh. Because she's one of these type A people, and she used to be like a hardcore runner, and now she's had to back off running because of these injuries. Yeah. But she's wanting to push herself. She's And she that day, she did cycling in the morning, and then she went out for a four-hour walk. So I was like, oh, okay. So again, Cycling's it's interesting. In, we should almost do a... We should. Because cycling puts your body in such... It's, it's not a bad thing to do, but it, it is a very unnatural posture, man. 
we yeah let's actually let's say that for another day because yeah, yeah it is a you're in a you're in another flexed position and you're, and you're generating force, force in deflection if you yeah. have clip pedals like it's a uh, yeah anyway definitely another conversation but with her it was the low it was the volume, the volume. Yeah. yeah and i was like hey how about you try going out for like let's like scale it back let's go for it for like a half an hour to an hour walk this week and let's see how you respond to that and open your um, before you do and, and do these game. things before do these things after yeah. and then she's like oh okay and it, with some people it's almost just managing these preconceptions of like some people just push 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 yeah. some people some people you need to push but mm-hmm. again um i, I think love looking at, i've i've been looking at the body more and more as this um like mechanical machine like uh, visualizing the machinery inside someone's body as they're doing a mobilization, as they're moving. Um, it's, it's so interesting how your mind can kind of go down that road now. And it, and it, it really does make a lot of these things intuitive, right? Mm-hmm. It makes, it makes you understand the mechanism behind, you know, that lady cycling, the anterior hip gets a bit tight when she's walking every step she takes. If she can't extend her hip is tilting your pelvis forward. And if your lumbar spine is getting reefed back yeah. and forth, yeah, the muscles are going to go into protection mode and, and tighten up, and it puts pressure on the joints. Basically, Back she thing. can't express hip extension well, and we've we've been working on this recently. But again, it, like you say, it's like the body is like this this machine, and often we're doing all of these things in our lives to that influence what this machine can or can't do, mm-hmm. and without knowing it. And then we get mad at the like it's funny because we get mad at the machine when when it doesn't do. When, when it we've starts, been abusing it, <laughs> yeah, it starts to kind of misfiring. It starts not doing its thing, and then we then we just get we get mad at it. We go into we just don't know why it's not do like mm-hmm. it's one of these things we're so disconnected these days with our own bodies that yeah, it's just this nice. this nice mystery. Machine. You got you got to really be nice to it, and then you got to like also like troubleshoot it and figure it out, and not just look for any like you got to be like okay, hey, okay, body, like what's going on here? Um, I agree, and but, it's like it's like someone driving the shit out of their car, never doing an oil change, never taking care of it, never rotating the tires and then the car starts to break down and the person's just there kicking it and it's like you stupid car i, I don't know you. why this is yeah like, i don't know why it's on, not man. running smoothly anymore take like, care of your car and it takes care of you take care of your body and it takes care of you and i think the lacking element for a lot of people taking care of their body is the information required to understand how to take care of their body this is the biggest disconnect it's like everyone's so concerned the healthcare is so concerned about taking care of people when they're sick or um you know everyone trying to make make money from the healthcare system. It's like, we're getting away from the, the core principle of people are more than capable of taking care of their own bodies. And in fact, that's the only way that they can be healthy is for them to take on that responsibility, understand it, implement it, right? And then and then there's way less problems. And there needs to be systems in place that support this too. Like, um, you know, it, that's another conversation for another day, but I think we just need to like, once systems are so far established, it's just really hard to, to change the fart up fight upstream. Yeah. Um, so I think, but the truth comes out eventually. So oh, yeah, last, last myth that we want to talk about, because this is something, you know, in Canada right now, it's raining outside. It's like two degrees. We're getting into the winter season. We're starting to look at winter boots. And this is a question that comes up a lot in our, in our, um, footwear shop is people look at these, um, the boots that we have that are, you know, more human boots from Vivo Barefoot or from other companies. And they say, well, these are great, but they don't have much insulation. Like my feet are going to get cold in these. And what this beautiful revelation that I came to last winter was that it's less about how much insulation you have in your boot. And it's more about how much blood flow is going into your foot. And when you realize that most people have feet that are asleep, have muscles that do not work, 
there is no stimulus to bring fresh blood flow into that extremity to warm it up. And it or the fact matter. that like you may not be able to even like movement is what allows you to, to yeah. actually get these muscles. So if your shoe is preventing you or, or boot is preventing you from actually moving and articulating your toes, they're going to yeah. get colder. Exactly. Just like your hands do. Like if you go for a walk out in out in the cold and you're like, okay, I'm not going to move my hands at all. I'm going to keep them like static throughout that walk. Quickly, they become very, very cold. And it doesn't matter how much insulation you have no. on top of them. They're still going to get cold. No, exactly. So then when you start to think like, okay, and you can even go out, like my hands will get colder in a, in a glove if I don't move them and I keep them by my sides as I'm walking versus if I have nothing on and I, and I and keep making fists, yeah. moving them, rubbing them go. back and forth, moving them. Ah, oh, okay. They're warm now. They're like, they get cold if you just stick them there. Yeah. Right? Like I went out with Liv last year to, to Meech Lake. So we went on a trail. It was winter. We were walking on basically ice and snow. And I, I, we kind of did a little experiment. I was like, I want you to wear your five fingers, which is basically like this tiny little layer of material. And, you know, if you get cold, we, we'll bring your boots too. But instead of wearing these big insulated boots, she wore her five fingers, which is virtually no insulation whatsoever. And just the fact that she was able to move and articulate and use her feet because there was almost no, no resistance to, to the muscles activating, she didn't get that cold feet. Like mm-hmm. her feet were not nearly as cold as what she thought they were going to be, despite her wearing no insulation. So... Moral of the story there is, if you're afraid of getting cold feet in winter, make sure you wear footwear that allows your foot to function, that allows the muscles to fire, and allows your foot to move, because movement is what brings fresh blood in. Muscle activation is what brings fresh blood into your feet and prevents them from getting cold. It is not slabs and slabs of insulation, because typically those super insulated boots are actually the ones that don't allow your foot to move at all. And like, it's the same thing in the, in the... I get it with my snowboard boots all the time. Oh, Exactly. In the clinic, though, too, I've had a few people ask me in the past few weeks, it's getting colder out, um, they'll see me in bare feet and they'll be like, aren't your feet cold? And But again, it doesn't even come to mind because they're, no, they're not at all. They're actually yeah. like, they're warm because yeah. I'm using them. Exactly. Um, so again, it's like if the people who walk in with shoes and all that, they're, it's, it's just a weird thing again, but it's not, you know, it's one of those things. Um, movement is needed to create blood flow, yeah. muscle activation. That's what keeps things warm. Mm-hmm. Um, so keep moving. Cool. Anyway, that's it for uh, this myth-busting myth busting episode. Uh, hopefully that clears up some of the misconceptions that are out there about things like bunions, uh, genetic flat feet, needing cushioning or arch support in shoes. Um, anyway, thanks for listening. We'll catch you guys next week.